welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science. For each episode, we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode, I'm joined by paleontologist and invertebrate zoologist Marissa Betts. Marissa, thanks for coming on the podcast, no way. Now, you're a paleontologist, so obviously my first question is, what's your favorite dinosaur? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I am, uh, as an invertebrate paleontologist here at, Monqu- at um, uh, University of New England, I guess I'm holding up uh, my end because it's very, in- very vertebrate heavy here. Yeah. We've got a lot of dinosaur paleos here. Yeah, we spoke to Nick on the podcast. Oh, we yeah, spoke to right. Phil Bell on the podcast a while yes, ago. They're the course. big charismatic dino people. Yes. But you're the other dark side of paleontology. Yeah, well, I guess UNE has also got a really strong... Um, like early Cambrian um, paleo unit. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess in terms of like invertebrate paleontology, the Cambrian's probably a pretty sexy time to be studying. Why is that? Um, so people call it the Cambrian explosion, mm-hmm. the Cambrian explosion of life. And that's when we see the, uh, it's not a real explosion. <laughs> <laughs> it's when we see the, the um, explosive radiation of of animals um, in the fossil record for the very first time. So radiation for non-scientists. Uh, so that's um, when we see um, evolution happening very, very fast. Mm-hmm. And so lots of different body plans um, evolving yep. in a very short period of time, geologically speaking. Yeah. So the fossil record just in terms of the diversity and abundance of things we're finding yes. in that geological era, yeah, it, that it goes way up. That's, that's right. That explosion. So that's right. So I mean, the that that the base of the Cambrian is about 542, 543 million years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, prior to that, the Earth was dominated very much by, or the the fossil record at least was dominated by microbes for a mm-hmm. long, long time. So maybe two billion years of mi- microbes, mm-hmm. and. Uh, at around the base of the Cambrian, just before some very exciting things start to happen, we see in the fossil record. Um, but it's not really until the base of the Cambrian where we see uh, this huge explosion of, of animal life happening. Mm-hmm. And that really sets the scene for all of the, everything we know about ecology in the modern day um, has its roots all the way back down 500 million years ago in the Cambrian. So when we say explosion, what, what this is a pretty slow explosion, right? This is over millions well, of years. Yeah, it uh, it is over millions <laughs> of years. But in uh, you know, if the 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 Earth is four point five six billion years mm. old, it really is uh, the blink of an eye. And I suppose that is the um, the question a lot of people do uh, struggle with. Paleontologists are still trying to answer whether it was um, an explosion, a very sudden event, or if it was something that was more protracted Mm. with a a long uh, pre-Cambrian fuse and that, you know, maybe the the explosion that we see in the fossil record is just an explosion of like fossilizable things. Mm -hmm. So maybe the, you know, animals before then were just kind of soft and squishy and we didn't, we can't really fossilize soft and squishy things very easily. 
So maybe it's the radiation or the evolution of hard skeletons mm-hmm. that we see in the lower part of the Cambrian. All right, so well. it's not necessarily the diversity going up, but just the changing to things that fossilize Yeah, so better. It, it is a big combo of all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, but recent work by John Patterson here, he looked at trilobites and their rates of evolution in the early Cambrian. And his results were that there probably wasn't a long fuse and that actually, you know, the, the roots of those animal trees really did start in the lower part of the Cambrian and that it was a very fast that, uh, and very short period of rapid evolution and then it stabilised very fast mm. or very quickly. I mean, this is how evolution tends to work, right? We think of it as a slow, gradual process. Yes. But when you actually look at it, it kind of happens in bursts. That's and right, things. that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's so many cool things happening at the time in the early Cambrian that might be having an effect on this stuff. Mm. And so, you know, everyone's kind of, you know, asking those questions, why did we have the Cambrian explosion? And it could be a whole number of different things mm. kind of acting together. So plate tectonics, it could be changing atmosphere, um, compositions, water chemistry, all of these things. So talking about the early Cambrian as opposed to the late Cambrian, does the Cambrian have like definite stages? Are there eras within the Cambrian? (laughs) Yeah, Um, most of those sort of, you know, recognizable chunks of time um, through um, the geologic time scale will have like early, middle and late. Mm. And those are kind of arbitrarily defined, usually based on um, fauna on different fossils, Mm -hmm. fossil assemblages. Um, and the Cambrian, yeah, it does have the early, middle and late. But it's, um, it's got some problems, I guess, with the time scale because I suppose it's a very, we're talking about, you know, 500 million years ago. It's um, been difficult to ratify those boundaries. So a lot of people spend a lot of time arguing about where we should be put, placing <laughs> those. <laughs> and it's a problem because, you know, everybody wants to know about when stuff happened during the Cambrian explosion, how long stuff took to happen. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult to do any accurate measuring when your ruler doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. You know, if we don't know about our numbers and stuff like that. Does it matter where you draw the line? Um, well, everybody's got to agree. <laughs> everybody's got to be kind of speaking the same language, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but that has been kind of my work um, mm. up until now and including you know, the work that I do now. My PhD was essentially trying to um, remake the Cambrian timescale for South Australia. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so before the Cambrian, mm-hmm. we have these microby squishy things. Mm-hmm. But you said we have fossils of them. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do those fossils look like if they don't have hard parts to yeah. fossilize? Well, uh, I guess we're talking um, specifically about the Ediacaran fauna. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're about oh, six, 600, 650 million years. Um, they didn't last very long either. And um, it is possible to fossilize soft, squishy things. Mm-hmm. You just got to get the right conditions. Yep. Um, like there are fossils of jellyfish and, and medusoids and things like that with mm. no hard parts whatsoever. Um, but yeah, in, in, the, in the Ediacaran times, just before the, um, the Cambrian, we do see fossils of these very special um, fauna. And I guess we don't even really know if they're actually related to animals at all. No. <laughs> yes. So they, um, their impressions are left in the rocks. Yep. And so you can cleave the rocks apart and see their impressions left behind. 
they lived on because the, um, the sea and the, the oceans were very, very different to today. The sea floor was usually glued together by a microbial mat. And so the sediment was sort of firm and probably kind of furry. <laughs> you know, and it's probably, you know, maybe a photosynthesizing kind of microbial community. Yeah. It might be green and fuzzy and these um, squishy kind of quilt-like animals or organisms would be resting on that mat. Yeah. The, the fossils, we can't see evidence of a mouth or an anus or any kind of, um, sometimes people suggest there's some kind of organs or in, inside of them, mm -hmm. but um, generally they're very simple and probably they are feeding by just absorbing passively nutrients from that mat that they sit on. All right. Yes. So yeah. this is really back when life was a Yes. Ooze. Yeah. <laughs> they call uh, people have called it the Garden of Ediacara, you know, because it's they're, they're living in this lovely um, kind of a utopia because they don't have there's no real predators there. Mm. Like the food chains haven't really established them themselves in the way that we kind of understand them today. Yeah. Um, and well, there were they were, they were sitting on the map, but there were some that kind of had holdfasts um, in the mat, and then a frond-like kind of a shape would extend into the water column. Maybe they would be filtering things mm. out of the water. Um, but yeah, they, they didn't really survive um, much past the base of the Cambrian. We do see some shapes like that, these frond mm. shapes in the, in the lower Cambrian, but they, they didn't survive. They, couldn't out, they were outcompeted yeah. probably by what And you're saying them. we don't actually know if these necessarily were ancestral animals. Yes. Well, um, it's very difficult to tell that, mm -hmm. but there was a, a very recent work by a team um, at ANU and they look at biomarkers, which is um, a chem chemical fossils, the chemical traces of, of life. So mm -hmm. if you haven't got an actual fossil, you can analyze a rock and try and find the, the chemicals that um, ancient organisms have left behind. All right. Yeah, and so they got these uh, Ediacaran fossils from Russia, the White Sea in Russia, and they um, targeted them for biomarkers. And they found, I think the biomarkers were cholesteroids, but that's, <laughs> that, that was an indication that um, you can only really get cholesterol biomarkers from animals. All right. So their conclusion was that at least this thing, it's called Dickinsonia, might have been an animal. All right. Yeah. And then once we get into the Cambrian, then we're seeing things that are definitely more animal-like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, they, they look like animals and they're doing, the, the ecosystems are becoming a lot more complex and like what we would recognize mm. in the modern day. So, so yeah. we spoke to uh, Russell about oh, yeah. his little mm. crawly, shelly things, but what sort oh, of critters yeah. are you working on? So I have worked um, on a group called the Small Shelly Fossils. Is, is that the technical that name? That is the technical term. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it has been for a long time. I guess now it's just an umbrella term for a whole bunch of different things. Mm. Um, so I guess Small Shelly research um, has been, you know, people have known about these things for a long, long time. I've I think that I've cited a paper from Shelley Fossils from South Australia from the late like 1800s or something like that. All right. Like, yeah, 1890 something. And um, so, I mean, that's just in Australia. And so they occur in different places around the world. And so places like Europe would have a longer um, scientific heritage mm. than we do. So, Do you know, this might not be an answerable question. Like whenever you hear about 
the discovery of fossils. You always hear about when that first iguanodon was found as being the first dinosaur fossil. But other fossils, non-megafauna fossils, do we always know about them? What, the first discovery of? They're just fossils in general. Whenever somebody discovered a first fossil. Yeah. Um, well, I'm thinking about, uh, there's this great, um, what's the name of the book? The guy's name's William Smith. Ah, he, he, the book is called The Map That Changed the World. And he, it's a story about the guy who kind of in, invented stratigraphy, the idea right. of studying um, layers of rock strata, like mm. sediments and interpreting their ages and he worked out this is in england a long time ago mm. uh, he was building the canals through england and so mm -hmm. he was digging through a lot of these rocks mm. and what he noticed was that older rocks seem to have this package of fossils in them that are different to younger rocks mm -hmm. and so he tried to sort of put that in some sort of sequence yeah and so that's kind of the birth of biostratigraphy. And at that time it was already recognised that these were the sort of remains or imprints of things that once lived well, there. Well yeah, it's quite odd because you, you know, it's, it's a rock but then you open it up and you're like, how is there a, like a marine shell yeah. inside of this thing? And, and it was controversial because everybody thought that um, all of these things were laid down at once in the flood, mm. the biblical flood, right? And so he's kind of thinking, well, it doesn't make any sense because I'm seeing all this stuff in different layers yeah. and they're different, you know? So obviously something's changing over time. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, he ran into some opposition, of course, but uh, the map that he drew of the geology of uh, England is... It's almost as good as what you can get today. Yeah, <laughs> you did an amazing job. <laughs> yeah. But the small shelling things you're working on, are these, what are they? Are they mollusks or are they? There are some mollusks in there. So yeah, small shelly fossils is an umbrella term for a bunch of different things. The older work has was mostly about trying to work out what they are um, or, um, and naming a lot of things. Um, when we look at the, them now, often well, we can work out that there are some things that are recognisable. There are definitely mollusks in there or like stem group mollusks. A lot of the organisms that we're talking about with small shelly fossils are stem group animals. So that means that they're um, right down the bottom of the tree of life mm -hmm. on the stem. Um, so mollusks, some brachiopods, these bivalved um, shelled creatures, some, some uh, like bivalve pipi-like mollusks yeah, as right. well but then there are a whole bunch of different shells that um, probably belonged to a, a multi-element animal so an animal that had a suit of armor yeah, that right. fell apart after it died yeah um, and uh, the challenge is to work out how to put that thing together it's a small shelly puzzle <laughs> have people done that yeah All right. so sometimes you can get lucky and um, and find the sort of smoking gun evidence. So you mm. crack a rock and be like, oh man, that's how it come together. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, an example of um, one called uh, Halkyria evangelista. Mm. And uh, this thing's, they, they just found all of these different sclerites, that's the individual pieces of armor in the fossil residues. And uh, they were like, oh, I don't know what this is. Um, and eventually they found a, a crack out body fossil in the Sirius Passet formation um, in Greenland. And it was not really like what they had imagined at all. Mm. So um, there, there are two kind of broad types of, of armor plates that it mm. had. 
um, two big shells, one at its head and one at its tail. And then the rest of the worm-like body was coated in this, these scales. Yeah. Um, but of course, those two big shells don't look anything like the scales. And so previous to that, people had described two separate animals, mm. the two-shelled thing, and then something else that had a bunch of different scales on it. Yeah. And so when they found this thing in Sirius Passet, they were like, oh man. <laughs> so this is exactly the same story we hear about the big dinosaur research. Yeah. You find a bunch of scattered bones, you have to figure out how and if they fit together. Yeah. So that just on a much smaller, that's right, yeah, cooler scale. Yeah, um, there's one I worked on a little while ago called Daliatia, um, and we still have not found the animal um, mm. together. Um, but we have we have thousands and thousands and thousands of these sclerites, and so they did some, um, uh, I guess, statistical work, working out the kind of ratios of what that you would expect one animal to have of these different types of of sclerite shapes mm. um, and the sclerite shapes have different um, morphologies so there's left and right morphologies yeah, in some right. of them so that would tell us that it's probably a bilaterally symmetrical animal rather than just a tube yeah you know because a lot of these animals are just tubes they're just sort of attached <laughs> to attached to the seafloor um, so we think it probably is like a a vagrant kind of worm-like mm. animal that can move around on the seafloor. So you're not just randomly picking up two pieces and going, do these fit together? <laughs> yeah. There's more of a technique to it. can be a bit like that. <laughs> 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 they did do some um, 3D scanning, and so mm. you can print them out like larger sizes. So these things are, you know, they would be millimetric. Yeah. So small shelly fossils are probably, you know, they'd be under a millimetre to maybe the maximum size of your pinky nail, mm. and that would be an absolute monster. And so when you print them out a bit larger, it gives you a bit more of a, you can kind of work th with them like a puzzle. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't that be a great like, so citizen fun. science thing yeah. or something to <laughs> print it all out and just give it to a bunch of people That's and say, true. what can you fit Awful together? Kids. Yes. Because I remember they did that a while ago with a, a protein. Oh, really? They were working on that they didn't know how it folded. Oh. And they had it as like a 3D file. And so they just put it up online. Oh. for people to play with, with and they you know, could program in the rules of how particular molecules join and, and move oh. in relation to one another. And just by crowdsourcing it, a bunch of people eventually figured out how to fold the molecule, how oh. to fold the protein together from all the individual molecules. That's great. And it ended up being published and was an actual proper discovery. Oh, fab. I maybe reckon that you should totally that. do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking fossils. maybe we could hit up Lego because sometimes they'll like, you know, make different sort of Lego shapes and stuff like that and people would be encouraged to play with them more. Maybe. Yeah. Well, if you could 3D print them yes. yourselves. Yeah. And if nothing else, you'd see what cool imaginary critters people come up yeah, with. Yeah, what's when, possible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are some constraints, you know, when you think, oh, no, there are left and rights, and these ones I know, you know, stick together and stuff, so maybe there are some rules or whatever, but... All good games have rules. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I did make, like, because we couldn't 3D print all of them, I actually made, uh, like, paper paper models of them. Uh. So I had like a whole bunch of these and so I could sort of stick them together with blue tack and make these, you know, little dodgy paper models. <laughs> yeah. That's great. And then I could sketch from them because I would do the the, um, the reconstructions for the papers. I mean, you, you are an artistic person, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I think that this is um, a good example of how paleo can be a really imaginative kind of thing. Like, mm. I think you have to be one of those people that um, uses your imagination a lot to mm. be in paleontology. I think the reason that 
people are drawn to it is because they want to, you know, imagine what the world was like a long, long time yeah. ago, right? And find the evidence for all of the, those things. Yeah, I get to go out and see my animals and see yes. what they look like and see how they move. Yeah, and yeah. You just always got to live in your imagination. It's too easy. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the romance? Yeah. <laughs> But you, you do love your, your small shelly fossils and you've got some ink yes, to express I do. that. <laughs> what have you got? That is daily ATR, actually. Yeah. All right. So I got them at the end of my PhD to congratulate myself. <laughs> and um, my supervisor, Glenn at Macquarie, was very excited, but he was disappointed they didn't have a scale bar. <laughs> he was very funny. <laughs> so I'm not getting a scale bar then. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, he was very impressed that they could be teaching tools as well. So yeah. when you explain to people what you do, you can just sort of point at, you know, your tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty good sign, though, that you weren't scarred by your PhD so much that you never wanted to see this critter again. No, I actually had a really good time with my PhD. <laughs> I, had a, I, my, I love my project. My, um, my friend Sarah Jackay, who's now a postdoc in Missouri in the US, mm -hmm. she, she worked on shelly fossils as well, but she worked on mollusks. Mm -hmm. um, and... I think I got it easy um, because the shelly fossils can be made out of different things. Most of them, are, or a lot of them, are made out of uh, calcium phosphate or they get phosphatized. Um, uh, but a lot of them are made out of calcium carbonate. The animals would make their shells out of calcium carbonate and that's very difficult to get, out, get them out of the rocks mm. or preserve them. And so she was working on mollusks or she kind of got assigned this project to work on early Cambrian mollusks. And of course, our, um, our processing methodologies is to put the, the rock in acid um, and dissolve it. And because it's limestone, calcium mm. carbonate rock, you put it in just vinegar, um, weak acetic acid, dissolves the, the limestone and it leaves the um, phosphatic shelly fossils behind. Right. But if anything there is originally calcareous, that is also dissolved. <laughs> <laughs> so she's working on originally, you know, calcareous organisms, yeah. whoosh, gone in the in the acid leaching process. Yeah. And so you have to rely on these um, preservational processes, like, you know, they get phosphatized, a coating on the outside of them. And so she was very frustrated during her PhD. We referred to it as the arranged marriage. <laughs> <laughs> you just get what you're yeah, given. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And you just have to kind of work out a way to learn to love it. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these different, the different things they're made out of, are they just to do a different fossilization processes or it comes down to what they were? Yeah, so it's, a, it's probably a genetic um, process that they've developed to, mm. um, to biomineralize calcium phosphate um, and make their shells out of calcium phosphate. I All mean, right. our, our skeleton is made out of calcium phosphate too. Yeah. Um, animals have um, evolved to biomineralize a whole host of different kinds of minerals from you know calcium phosphate to different kinds of calcite to magnetite mm -hmm. other iron sulfides and things like that all right yeah and so these I mean and you probably understand the fossilization process mm -hmm. more than I do but isn't <laughs> it that the original skeletons mm. That's not what we're getting out of the rocks. We're getting like minerals that have replaced those. Um, not always. Sometimes you will get. I mean, the, the ones that are original calcium phosphate, mm -hmm. they'll be the original the skeletons. Oh yeah. Um, sometimes they are replaced, um, often by phosphate. Sometimes by silica. Um, the phosphatic um, replacement can be very very fine detail, and mm. that's 
that's great because it gives you a lot of information about the shell, which is pretty much all we have to identify these things. Um, I've noticed myself that if it's a silica replacement, it can be very coarse. Mm. Um, and you don't get as much detail out of it. Which is a big deal when we're looking at such tiny yeah, things. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So the, the better detail you can get, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, the, uh, the things that we're looking at are the original, the original shells, which is pretty crazy because they're over 500, you know, yeah. 15 million years old or something like that. I freak out when I'm looking at museum specimens yeah. that are 20 years old. It's crazy, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just, uh, I just did this, uh, I'm going to go to Germany um, this month to work on some shelly fossils and we want to know what the shells, how the shells are made. Mm-hmm. And so I've put these tiny little millimetric fossils in a resin stub, put them on a little piece of double-sided sticky tape and poured <laughs> some resin over the top of them and then used very fine um, grinding powder and polish the stub down <laughs> and then eventually you grind through them oh, okay. and so then you, you, that's how you section them yeah. um, and then polish it up really really high polish and yeah. then you can put it in the scanning electron microscope so you can look very closely at how the the microstructure of the shells mm-hmm. because the microstructure of the shells can tell you about the, the evolutionary relationships with the different groups mm. yeah so you're you're a Amazing globetrotter with the work that you do. <laughs> so you're off to Germany yes. soon, but even up until now, you're back and forth between here and China. Yes, yeah. And all over Australia yes. as well, getting these things. <laughs> Why? You're not, you know, I hear about paleontologists that will just focus on, you know, Kangaroo Island oh, yes. shell and always just go back to the one spot, but you're going everywhere. Oh, yes. I think that um, I have this problem with saying no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I sometimes I think, oh, well, you know, YOLO, like, like I have these opportunities, why not try? Yeah. And um, the, I, my field site in the past and during my PhD has been the Flinders Ranges and I would absolutely go back there in a second to do work and I went, mm. I went back last year with um, the guys here and collected some more material. I guess I just know that place um, mm. like the back of my head now. <laughs> um, and yeah, I have had um, close working relationships with uh, a university in China, Northwest University, and they have um, really good program for early Cambrian science mm-hmm. and they they work n- not so much on small shelly fossils or there's definitely people there that do but uh, they have a really great collection of um, exceptionally preserved Cambrian fossils from um, Lagerstaten which is mm. a fossil deposit of amazing quality um, uh, like the Chengjiang um, in, in Kunming um, in, uh, yeah, in South China so um, it's good to have that relationship because you get lots of opportunities to, to travel but also to see these places and see mm. the, the rocks and the fossils yourself. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the trip that I'm doing from this Friday will be working with uh, people in Sweden. So I've got a project going um, with guys in Stockholm at the museum there. We do work in Mongolia. Um, on small shelly fossils mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I'll be working with them and then going to Germany after that to work on more small shelly fossils with somebody else there. <laughs> so, and are they the same 
sort of critters you're finding all across the globe, or is it very different depending on where you are? That's a that's a really good question. That's something that that's a, an area I would like to try and move into is using small shelly fossils as a tool to help us reconstruct what the um, early Cambrian continents were like um, a long, long time ago. Right. So yeah, there are there are provincial faunas. Um, there is definitely a South Australian fauna, which I'm very familiar with, and we see um, elements of that in um, rocks from Antarctica. So we have shelly fossils, early Cambrian shelly fossils from Antarctica. And some of those, are they're so similar that it's, it, it's good evidence, and we know that Australia and Antarctica were joined back in the Cambrian, so it was part of the one sort of um, belt of, of rocks or, or depositional environments. All right, um, so as in those habitats were joined yes. at some stage. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the shelly fossils are giving evidence for that. Okay. Um, so this is something we still haven't quite got perfect is where yeah. continents have been. Yeah, that's right. And right. the further back you go, the more difficult it is to do that puzzle. Um, so I think because a lot of the reconstruction of the continents, um, especially for more recent work, and I'm talking like Jurassic to the present day, is that they use these sort of seafloor stripes, the, the magnetic mm. stripes on the seafloor, and they kind of basically just rewind the, um, <laughs> <laughs> the um, production of seafloor um, at the mid-ocean ridges, and then they kind of glues the continents back together. But prior to that, it's very difficult um, difficult thing to do because we haven't really got that evidence anymore. So for people listening, can you explain <laughs> the whole magnetic sea stripes oh, thing? <laughs> yeah, sure. So <laughs> Let's start with the fact that like continents that move right over time. So, okay, firstly, continents move over time. Yeah. And um, there's, are there these things called uh, mid-ocean ridges, mm -hmm. and that's where seafloor is formed. Yeah. So the, the continents, because of the, the convection of the mantle underneath the, um, the tectonic plates, um, that creates these sort of convection currents and moves the plates apart. And when the plates move apart, more um, magma is formed at the mm. mid-ocean ridge and um, creates more seafloor as it moves apart. So Eventually, there's literally new earth coming up at these all ridges the and so pushing what, the old earth yeah, sideways. that's right. And a place where you can see that, I think, on the... Uh, like at the surface is Iceland. Mm. So if you go to Iceland, Iceland's actually getting bigger because the <laughs> mid-ocean ridge is running right through the middle of it. Yeah. And so it's making more, more Iceland um, yeah. <laughs> all the time. And you can go diving on the mid-ocean ridge there and, and see what it looks like. So the, the earth, surface of the earth is sort of moving outwards like a conveyor belt. That's right. Mm -hmm. And then at some and then parts at some on the point other it, side, it might it'll sink into the back into the the mantle and yeah. create a subduction zone. And yeah. So the plates are getting recycled all the time, and uh, we also have this thing called a magnetic field um, generated by the the core, the iron core inside the earth, mm -hmm. um, and the action of the the earth spinning around makes a dynamo uh, magnet, mm -hmm. and that's why we have the north and south pole. Yep, that's why your pop. compasses work. Yep. Yep. And um, in the past, the the North and South Pole have flipped occasionally. Mm -hmm. um, so the North is the South and the South is the North. And um, as the magma is coming out at the mid-ocean ridge, there are little tiny magnetic particles in it, and they will passively align themselves with the ambient magnetic field. <laughs> Crazy, hey? Yeah. And so um, when, you, when you do like a magnetic survey over the Atlantic Ocean, for example, you can see these positive and negative stripes. Um, 
and they correspond to times when we had a normal or a re reverse magnetic field. It's, it's literally like you know steps on an escalator yeah. being different colors, you know, yeah. depending on what yep. stage we're at with our magnetic pole. Yep, that's right. So that's an easy way to reconstruct continents because you basically just rewind that. To try and match up. Yeah, stripes. Then, yeah, that's right. And then when you can, you can sort of push continents back together, and you know, one side of Africa fits into the other side of South America, and you're like, oh, yeah. well, that puzzle looks pretty obvious. But when you go way back to the Cambrian, a lot of those coastlines, are, they're gone. Yeah. Well, like so we don't well have gone. the magnetic. Yeah. Map anymore? No, we don't have the magnetic map, but people have there are paleomagnetic um, data that you can get. Mm. Um, but it's just a, a question of how reliable it is, and you just need you need to get the right rocks to mm. to be able to do that sort of work as well. So the further back you go in time to do these sorts of puzzles, it's kind of like trying to do a you know a puzzle with. Um, you don't even know how many pieces you need. You haven't got the picture on the box to help you out. <laughs> and, you know, so you're just trying to work out, you know, what you can do with what you have. Yeah. And every little piece of evidence that you can scrounge is important. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I can't even picture that in my head how <laughs> the land that's in South Australia was at one stage connected somewhere near Mongolia. Well, right. yeah, no, so we went, well, actually the Mongolia question, where that was, I don't think is, okay. is, is solved. The, um, the Shelley fossil record from Mongolia is really good. It's just a very difficult place to study because it's difficult to get to. Yeah. Um, and they, the, the tectonic sort of, the tectonics of Cambrian Mongolia, I don't think is resolved. It's probably right. this sort of a mishmash terrain of little pieces that have been kind of pushed together yeah. from different tectonic activities a long, long time ago. Um, and the, the geological evidence of, of lots of tectonic activity is definitely there. The rocks are often not in great shape. So sorry, what did you say that the Flinders Ranges fauna was similar? Oh, to? Antarctica. Okay. Yes, yeah. and they, the, the rocks um, have fantastic evidence for warm water. Right. So you, they go to Antarctica and they collect these Cambrian rocks and it has these beautiful um, reef structures in them and different um, other sedimentary uh, structures that tells you unequivocally that it was warm water. So the, um, at that time, Antarctica was near the equator. <laughs> <laughs> and so is this the sort of information you're gleaning from your small shelly fossils or is most of your work about cataloguing what's there and trying to identify what things are? Um, it's a bit of both. Like I mm -hmm. think that when, you know, the, the thing that I really enjoyed about working on small shelly fossils is that you have this opportunity to do a bunch of different things with them. And um, so I, I do sort of engage in that kind of science of describing them and working out what they are. But um, they are fantastic tools for helping us to answer these questions. Bigger, mm -hmm. often geological sort of questions. I come from a geological background. And so, you know, I've used them for working out time scales, but then applying them to this question of the, um, where the plates, the tectonic plates were, um, is, is a really good application for them, mm. especially when you can combine them with different other pieces of data, like the paleomag data. Um, there's geochemical data that you can use as well. Mm. So, yeah. So when, you've, when you're finding new things, imagine you're finding new things all the time. Yeah. At what point do you go, right, this is worth describing as a new species or new form or something? Um, 
think it's always worth doing. Um, there, uh, I guess people come in two categories when it comes to describing new fossils or new anything, the splitters and the lumpers. <laughs> I don't know if you've come across that. Yes, you know? <laughs> had the same conversation with the dinosaur people. Yeah, I right. <laughs> I think I'm a lumper <laughs> myself, right. yeah. yeah. Um, especially because I suppose Shelley fossil taxonomy and systematics has been kind of... Um, plagued with this oversplitting problem because mm -hmm. you have multi-element animals with these different um, pieces of armor on them and e each one was getting described as a different animal mm. you know so the, it's been a huge job kind of cleaning that up and making sure that we're actually just describing one thing with multiple different elements on it mm. and so i'm you know hesitant to kind of describe new things in that in that way yeah. and oversplit um, and you know you need to have to make sure that you have like a good um, sample size before you can go ahead and, and really and name something mm -hmm. unless you know that it's like an, an, a single element animal or something that only has two I'm always amazed at what they seem to describe things from in paleontology. Like mm. they'll describe an entire new dinosaur from a piece of a jawbone. its toe or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, no, that freaks me out too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how they manage that. So is that something that happens with these small fossils? Are you able to reconstruct larger things from bits? Yeah, well, I think that that's what people are starting to not do now. Like, right. you know, we're getting pretty good at um, solving that small, like the, the term small shelly fossils is even kind of getting phased out <laughs> because it doesn't mean anything, mm. right? So um, we're getting better at knowing what we're looking at. And if we don't know what they are, then that's in a special pile of we're sorting that out. Yeah. You know, and maybe naming it is, you know, not the greatest idea just yet. Yeah. <laughs> and because they're so small, and Shelly. Yeah. <laughs> is there, do you always know you're actually looking at a fossil? <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, I think that you just, um, at, with practice, you get your eye in. Yeah. Um, and I remember... It's not just a rock that's yeah, flaky looking. When you first start, I remember doing my honours or whatever, and you're going through your, uh, your residues with a paintbrush with like two or three hairs on it, and you're picking through it very slowly and carefully. And I was always rushing to Glenn and asking him what that was. He's like, no, that's a piece of crap. Like, oh, well. And then eventually you sort of think, oh, well, when in doubt, pick it out. And so you pull it out and then, you know, maybe later you look at it and think, oh, no, that's not anything. Yeah. Often, some, or sometimes you can pick it out and think, oh, this is definitely a thing. And yeah. put it, get it all the way to the stage of putting it in the scanning electron microscope. And it's not until you really zoom in on it where you go, oh, that is a piece of crap. Yeah that I've got a really nice high-resolution image of now. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to imagine. I mean, I, geology itself just is, is beyond me. You know, when people are pointing out sandstone, and I'm sitting there going, is that sandstone? I guess so. Well, I work primarily in limestones. So sandstones are cool, I guess, but yeah, limestones are where it's at, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're a great rock. Well, they're, um, limestones are uh, mostly biogenic. So they're mm. made by animals. Yeah. Um, and so the whole thing is this often, you know, it's a, it's a fossil playground sometimes. Yeah. yeah. For a great place to play unless you're working on things that dissolve along That's with That's right. Yeah. yeah. So that if someone can solve that problem of uh, removing calcareous 
microfossils from like a calcareous rock. You know, people suggest because there's lots of scanning technologies mm. that you can try and scan them. But uh, the issue with that is that you need uh, a density difference. So mm. when you have got a calcareous fossil and a calcareous rock, the <laughs> density difference is not really enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, a lot of the, the fauna that we're looking at is um, phosphatic or phosphatized. So that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Well, if people want to follow your adventures around the globe, finding small shelly things, where, what's the best place for them to find you? I do have a website, mm -hmm. um, it's marissajbetts.wordpress.com mm -hmm. and I, I put up a, a little sort of blog post of each um, project that All I'm right. involved in yeah. so you can sort of see stuff there and, um, and I'm also on Instagram, 200 micron. 200 micron. What's the significance of 200 microns? Oh, it's the <laughs> <laughs> because um, when we scan things in the uh, scanning electron microscope, a little scale bar pops up underneath our small shelly fossils, and uh, it seemed for a long time that I was only getting things that would, you know, with the 200 micron scale bar. <laughs> um, <laughs> sometimes things are 500 microns, but, but yeah, 200 microns. Now, would a 200 micron scale bar fit on your tattoo? Uh, yeah, but I don't want to put it on there. <laughs> you don't want to have your Instagram handle on your arm? <laughs> nah. <laughs> Glenn would be happy, but no. Nah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. That's okay. No worries. I look forward to seeing Instagram posts from Germany uh, and Mongolia and I'm sure Sweden. And... Very Instagrammable. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Cheers. And thank you guys for listening. We're on Instagram too, at Institute Science and Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast or check out everything we have at institutescience.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.